Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Everybody's journey is complicated. And, you know, my journey to doing what I'm doing right now is not something I would have picked out for myself. But that's the way life works. And today, we're going to talk about the path that former Navy SEAL commander Mark Devine took to becoming an elite warrior. We're going to trace his journey from a kid that was wandering the woods in upstate New York to being what he might consider a warrior monk. He reveals how spending time alone in the wilderness built some grit inside of him and the power of visualization. This story that he's going to tell about swimming is absolutely crazy and it's something that I've seen great athletes use to perform at the highest levels in the world. We're going to hear how martial arts and deep self-reflection revealed his warrior calling and purpose. This is a rare glimpse into the making of an elite leader, and he's going to talk about how self-mastery practices unlock potential. This is an amazing episode. All three of these with Mark have been absolutely fantastic. So if you didn't listen to the first two, episode 415 and 421, go back and listen. They're very impactful. I'm thankful that he came on the show. I want to let you know that my audio had a little bit of issues, so my quality is just a little bit off on this episode. Mark's is fantastic, which is important because most of this episode is just him talking and me listening. So let's get right to it. Let's lean in and learn from the best. I'm curious, like outside of your military experiences, who's influenced your life in a positive way? Well, I have to say, this is not a who, but a what. Nature was probably my first love and mentor. You know, I grew up upstate New York, spent my summers on Lake Placid of the Adirondacks. And um, my family, you know, was beautifully raucous, dysfunctional family, just like about 90% of America. Awesome. But man, there's a lot going on under that roof that I didn't want to be part of. And so I spent a lot of time outside. I would ruck, ruck, I didn't call it rucking back then, but I hiked the the trails and mountains of the Adirondacks alone a lot of times. And I'd run up and down those mountains. And and I used to, I started to have really extraordinary flow state experiences, you know, in my teens where like I'd run up a mountain, you know, people thought it was crazy because I would run up and I would, I would then uh, wrap my ankles and put knee pads on and I would run down. But you know, the... <laughs> The mountains yeah. back east are like all rocks and ruts and and roots and it was crazy. It was so much fun. I'd be doing you know flips as I slip and play. Anyways, great. I was in incredible shape. That was all that it was years before I became a seal. So when I went through seal training, it was like easy physically because I had developed that endurance, stamina, combination of strength, stamina, and durability where nothing could really bother me, my body. Mm. You know, and that was because I was really comfortable training alone spent hours and hours and hours, sometimes, you know, all day long. And I learned to be comfortable in my own mind. I didn't need someone to tell me how good I was, or I didn't need other people to kind of like judge myself against, compare myself to. And I found that nature was just an extraordinary partner when you were kind to it and, and you were, you know, you just became in a partnership with, with nature. It's something that humans need to relearn, right? Everything you need is right there. You just sit quietly in nature for a few hours. It's incredible. It's probably a master, the master meditation. So that was kind of number one. Number two would be, 
I guess I'll go chronological order and I'll just talk about three people. Um, my swim coach at Colgate University in 1983 taught me to visualize. So this is like 1983, sports visualization was pretty early. Hmm. I mean, it's certainly uh, people were doing it, but wasn't a whole lot of research on it. Not a whole lot of people talking about it. He got me to visualize my 200 meter uh, breaststroke race using a stopwatch at night. And which was hard for me to do because I was living in a paternity house with three others in my room. We called Room Yak. And it was called Room Yak because there was a lot of yakking going on in that I room. I bet. <laughs> Our paternity went through like 40 kegs of beer a week. I mean, it was just awesome times. Anyway, so here I am, you know, everyone's like partying and playing cards and name that tune around me. And I'm sitting there with my eyes closed and my stopwatch, you know. <laughs> visualize you learned race. how to shut out the noise, didn't you? You sure did. I did, yeah. Anyways. As you can imagine, it literally, I failed miserably for months. And I, I remember going to Benson, the name was Bob Benson. God bless him. I said, listen, this is impossible. I don't know how the hell anyone does this. He goes, just stick. It's like any skill. You just got to keep at it. Stick with it. Trust me on this. And I was like, ah, okay, I trust you. And so I kept doing it. It took me literally like months, four to six months before I could swim the entire race in my mind without distraction. It's a great practice, by the way, without distraction. And what happened, Eric, was really cool is my best time, I don't remember what it was exactly, but it was like somewhere like 203 or something like that for the 200 meter breaststroke. When I did this in my mind, and when I finally was able to do the whole race and start and stop the watch, I kept getting like a 159 or a two minutes right around there, three minutes faster than I had ever swum before. Anyways, that kind of puzzled me. So yeah, I was getting this time that was three minutes faster roughly than any I'd ever, any time I'd actually gotten in the water. What makes the story more interesting is that all happened, that kind of process he was teaching me was my sophomore spring. And during that springtime, I was also vying to get into an overseas study group. And I actually ended up getting into a London economic study group. And so junior year, I was in London for six months, seven months, and didn't swim. You know, swimming was a winter into spring thing. And so I wasn't on the swim team in the fall and into the winter. And I, but I came back in February of my junior spring and I wasn't going to swim because I missed almost all season. But I ran into Benson walking down or across the campus and, you know, we'd said our hellos. And, and he said, Mark, you know what? I know you haven't been in the pool in a year, but we've got a big championship meet coming up in a couple of weeks, I'd love to see you swim. And of course, my entire body was like, don't do it. <laughs> you know, don't, my mind yeah. was like, don't do it. <laughs> but I couldn't turn him down. So I'm, I'm thinking, no, my head's nodding yes. And so there I was a couple of weeks later, standing on the block, the gun goes off. I jump in the water. I do my underwater pullout and I'm swimming this 200 meter race after having not been in the pool for over a year. And I'm just feeling like this is a, I feel really good. And I felt like I had swum this race before. And when I touched the pad at the end, I got that time that I had visualized. Mm, that's crazy. My best time ever. And I hadn't been in the pool for over a year. You had trained it though so many times. I had trained it so many times in my mind. I had greased that, that neurological groove. My body believed it and believed that I could do it. That was extraordinary. I worked with a number of Olympic gold medalists and one of them is Veronica Campbell Brown. She's a three-time Olympic gold medalist. and. I didn't know, I knew she visualized, you know, I mean, we had a 14 year relationship, but it wasn't until later when I really understood 
like she would lay there at night and think of every like the warm up through the moment she stepped on the track to every part of that race and some of the most epic races i mean it was just like she's one of the most regal people you will ever meet in your entire life but she would totally destroy you <laughs> i mean like just when she ran in 08 in beijing like when she won the 200 it was not just like by a few meet i mean it was a total demolishing of the crowd and that was crazy intense there was not a shadow on the track because there was so much light if that makes any sense from the stadium and then the media all the people with cameras but she trained it over and over and over and over so it's almost not i mean from a physical standpoint of not being in quote condition for it but if you train something over and over and over in your mind it's almost like doing it is almost the same thing and there's a lot right. of research on that now so that's right so you said you have two more people right there are more, but that so that was powerful. And then the third, I already mentioned him, a guy named Tadashi Nakamura. I graduated Colgate in nineteen eighty five, and I didn't immediately go into the seals. And people think, yeah, you must have gone straight in the seals. Most people do right after college, or or they enlist without a college degree, or they enlist with a college degree. Actually, almost seventy five percent of Navy SEALs have a college degree when they go through SEAL training because there's so few officers. I went officer route, but I didn't go in until I was twenty five and a half. I turned 26 when I was at SEAL training. So my first career, I was in, uh, went to New York City and I worked for, I got hired by Coopers and Librand, now Coopers, And they sent me as part of a program to go to NYU Stern School of Business. So they would let us out for a 7.30 class down at NYU, which is down at the World Trade Center. But, but you know, we would get off work at 5.30 because they knew they had to give us some time, right? It was a joint work study program. And so most of my peers would go home and change and eat and, you know, maybe study, make their way down to NYU at the World Trade Center, whereas yours truly looked at that as another training block. I'm like, I got two and a half hours. What can I do in that time, right? And so as I was pondering this over a couple of weeks, you know, and I tried a couple of things that just took too much time, like going to the pool and, you know, doing this. I thought about rowing at the New York Athletic Club and it's just too much time. And so I was walking by down 23rd Street on my way home. I lived on 22nd Street and Broadway. I stumbled across this martial arts studio. It's a sound coming out of the second floor of this building, like really intense. And I looked up and said, World Sato Karate Headquarters. And I went up and checked that out. And I was like, whoa, this looks awesome, right? And there was Mr. Nakamura in the middle of the floor. And what I saw was like any other, unlike any other human being I'd ever seen before. Like he was a master. And this, I'm coming from a you know kid from upstate New York. I didn't know what a master was. I didn't even really know anything about the martial arts. He was unbelievable, right? The poise, his intensity, his humility, his strength, you know, his humor, all of that packaged up and, and whichever one would come out, you didn't know. It's depending on the circumstances. Very spontaneous. Hmm. There's a term called shibumi and that kind of um, is an example of or represents what he was. Shibumi means effortless perfection, spont hmm. spontaneous action. And so I was like... This is awesome. And whoever, I want to train with that man. I want to see, you know, I want to know what he knows. And so I started training with him. And then I noticed they had a Zen class. And so he was also a Zen master as well as, you know, the founder of this whole style of karate. So I started studying with the Zen class on Thursday nights and turned that into a daily practice. And so his mentorship and his just presence had a profound effect on me. Four years of meditating and training with him. November 1989, I got my uh, MBA from Stern. I got my CPA finally all in the bag. 
And I got my first degree black belt with him. And then I left it all behind to be a Navy, you know, to go become a Navy SEAL. You were training the whole time though. I was training the whole time, but about halfway through that time frame from 1985 to 89, it was all sitting on that Zen bench. I kept, you know, it was, as you know, meditation has a transformative effect on your consciousness, on your mind, on the quality of your thinking, as well as tapping into that inner guidance system, that intuition that you have. And my inner guidance system came alive. It came online after about a year and a half of meditating. And uh, like I said, I turned it into a daily practice. Every morning, I meditate for 20 minutes or longer. And then we had our long sits on Thursdays. And we, you know, we go to uh, retreats at the Zen Mountain Monastery Center in Woodstock, New York. And my in inner guidance system came alive. So I started to get signals to say that I was going down the wrong path, right? To be in Wall Street and you know, going chasing the money was not the right thing for me, that I was meant to be a warrior. You know, mind you, it didn't say you're meant to be a Navy SEAL, but like this idea of archetypal energy of being a warrior kept coming to me. Like, you're a warrior, Mark. You're not supposed to be a merchant, you know, chasing the dollar. So I started the journaling practice. I started asking better questions. I would ask those questions going into my meditation sessions. I just kept on getting more and more clarity. And then one day I was shown the Navy SEALs and, you know, this is how synchronicity also is an outcome of mental work, right? You start to do the mental work and you gain that clarity and then suddenly the universe starts to align to support you. So I found the Navy SEALs by walking past the recruiter's office and still wasn't clear how I was going to be a warrior. You know, I knew that military could be an option. I knew that, you know, there were other ways I could do it. But I saw this poster on the wall facing out and it said, be someone special. And then it had Navy SEALs doing wickedly cool shit. Didn't say anything about the SEALs, right? They were just using this as a, like a lead magnet for recruits. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and you double clicked and gave them your name. <laughs> exactly. and <laughs> I did double click on it. But I knew that whatever those guys were doing, that's what I wanted to do. So when I talked to the recruiter, I was like, you know, the guys in that poster out there, who are they? And they're like, oh, man, you don't want to do that. Like, there, are, there are a bunch of snake eaters, you know, baby killers. <laughs> like, no, they're not. You know, you want to sign here and become a nuke or a, you know, a, a surface warfare. I said, no, 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 no. And they knew it because very few people could get a contract. I said, I want to do that. They told me about the SEALs. I had heard the SEALs, but, you know, pretty secretive organization back then. Anyways, so knock, I wouldn't have done, I would never have uh, found the SEALs. I never would have been a Navy SEAL if it hadn't been for Nakamura hmm. in his, in his meditation practice. It's profound. Man, I'll tell you what, like, there's always so much more to the story, Isn't you know, like for every single person, there's, it's never like what you think. And I appreciate you sharing. I, I mean, I've, I've, this has been a joy for me personally, but I appreciate you kind of sharing this process and then kind of how it led to really the beginning of a lot of other things. But the beginning was really way before that. If people want to, they, you know, they heard you for two episodes with me now and they're like, man, I, I, I would really like to learn more. How can they find you? How could they enlist you as maybe a personal coach or they can go through your teachings or maybe even have you speak to their organization? Wow. Thank you for that. I have a podcast it's in its ninth season, Mark Devine's Unveil Mind or The Mark Devine Show. Search that. It's in the top 10 in Apple and mental and uh, health category. If you're interested in working with me, and having me coach you or coach your team, then you can uh, reach out to me at my markdivine.com website or info at markdivine.com. I'd love to have, uh, I would just open up spots on my new year long uh, training team. We call Unbeatable Team, which is kind of a hybrid mastermind uh, year of transformation with four in person training events with me and 
my team. It's really a powerful program. You can learn more about that at unmutalmind.com. And um, yeah, just reach out. Yeah. I, I love it, man. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your heart, your perspective, your approachable, uh, which is which I, I, I found to be very unique. We alluded to some other people that aren't quite so approachable for the average person. Uh, we're not going to mention names, but um, I really appreciate that about you, about the work that you're doing and the impact you're having. So thank you thank so you. much for joining me, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Eric. It was a really enjoyable interview and I appreciate you too, brother. Here we are. If you enjoyed these three episodes with Mark Devine, do me a favor, take a picture of the cover art of your favorite podcast episode with him and share it on social media and tag both of us and let us know what you learned. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode.